0: This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the Rabbi's Husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the Rabbi's Husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Dr. Elena Stein Hain, the director of faculty at the Shalom Harbin Institute of North America. A widely regarded teacher and scholar, Dr. Hain earned her doctorate in religion from Columbia University with a dissertation on the incredibly interesting subject of legal loopholes in rabbinic law. we're definitely gonna start by asking about that. She is an alumnus of the Yeshiva University graduate program in advanced Talmudic studies, and has served as a clergy member at the Lincoln Square Synagogue and the Jewish Center. Elena, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we get into your chosen passage, which is um, from Jeremiah, it's just the topic of your dissertation is so interesting. A whole dissertation, years of study on legal loopholes in rabbinic law. So just tell us, why do these loopholes exist and what are some examples of them? And how did they become the subject of a dissertation?
1: Well, I'll start with how they became the subject of a dissertation, which is I live my life and probably use a lot of loopholes in my, my own religious life. Like some of my religious life was constructed around loopholes. And as a child selling your chametz before Passover, just they're kind of all over the place. And so I was wondering why people are so cynical about them. And if people are so cynical about them, I was wondering why the rabbis were kind of interested in them. Though that particular loophole of selling one's chametz may be a later addition.
0: You know, interesting. So I, I have a book coming out on the Haggadah in March. And I say, that's a ridiculous custom. It is not based in the Torah. In fact, it violates the Torah. And that there's no notion of selling the hamates. It's, is the hamates in your home? There's no notion of selling it, buying it. It's not a commercial transaction.
1: Well, so my thesis is basically that what the rabbis were trying to do in creating loopholes is actually something very resourceful and nuanced which is they wanted to make sure that you were using the law in order to uphold the spirit of the law. So you could use the technicalities of a law to save people money, for example. And that's a really, it's a unique posture in the ancient world, very different from the Greeks and the Romans. Unique posture, not to say the spirit of the law and the letter of the law go against each other, but to say that you can actually sometimes use the letter of the law in order to fulfill the spirit of the law. And the good loopholes do that. The bad loopholes well, they just undermine the spirit of the law, too.
0: Would you consider the Hamates the fact that and again, I, I think this one cannot do this, but I'm in the distinct minority. I mean, you could sell a contract to sell Hamates on all over the Internet, which people presumably download and sign before Pesach to remove it from their home legally as a. But is that legitimate? It would seem that if your argument is that it saves people money, particularly people who don't have to worry about the cost of their bread, they should not that loophole should not even be available to them.
1: So I'll tell you personally, I live in an apartment. I have two children and I do my best to get rid of my chametz over the course of a month before Passover because I don't have liquor. I don't have hundreds of dollars worth of chametz sitting around. So it's actually quite subjective, right? It's a question of, are you exploiting or are you actually appreciating that if you shop at Costco and you have lots of chametz around, do you have to get rid of hundreds of dollars and thousands of dollars worth of chametz? before Passover. And I think the answer is no, but it's very subjective, right? So for me, I don't do it because I don't need it. It's not saving me a, an incredible amount of money, but for somebody else, it might be something else.
0: Right. There is a beautiful custom and a magnificent reason for the custom for burning the Hametz on the night before Pesach and, and all that symbolizes. And when we have some contract that, that is a loophole, we just viscerate that whole notion and deny ourselves that great experience.
1: Well, I think there's a separate question of how do you actually continue to appreciate, honor, what the meaning of the original law was, even when you're using a loophole. And that to me is a separate question and an important one.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Well, I'm so excited to learn about Jeremiah from you. So let's talk about Jeremiah 28, which is your chosen passage. And please tell us what happens in Jeremiah 28 and uh, why it's so significant to you.
1: Oh, it's so dramatic. I love how dramatic it is. The Babylonians were in the middle of like a slow conquest of Jerusalem. So at this point, when Jeremiah and Hanania are arguing, the Babylonians had already sent an Israelite king into exile to Babylonia and sent a bunch of Jews into exile into Babylonia and had set up a puppet king. So Jeremiah has been telling the people, we're talking about the destruction of the first temple. And he's been trying to explain to the people, you don't understand, the Babylonians are going to come in, they're going to destroy the first temple, and they're going to do it because as a society, we've just gone backwards. We are pagan, and we are not treating the poor right, and we are disrespecting the widow, and we're murdering, just terrible, terrible things. And it's fascinating to watch as Jeremiah brings this message to people, how much of a traitor people take him to be. Because what he's basically saying is, we need society to change, but I know that you're not going to change. So we should just accept the fact that the Babylonians are going to come in, they're going to destroy the temple, and we should just give up and give in to them. Because if you're not going to change, the politics are not what drives things, the morality is what drives things. And people think he's a traitor. They want to lynch him. I mean, literally, they think he's a traitor. And in this chapter, 28, you find that he actually has another problem to contend with. It's that there are other people pronouncing themselves as prophets who are saying to the people, "Nah, don't worry about it. Just recite some Psalms and you'll be fine.
0: Now, are they in Babylonia or Jerusalem at the time?
1: They're in Jerusalem.
0: Okay. And so Jerusalem has been conquered and Jeremiah is saying, this is not a political or even a military problem. This is a deep moral problem that is going to take us some time and prayer among many other things, including most
1: importantly, action to help us get through it. Yeah, they're actually on the eve of the Babylonians destroying the temple. And Jeremiah tries to explain to them, you think your temple can't be destroyed. You think you're so strong. You think you're so mighty. I'm telling you, the core is rotten. And if the core is rotten, the Babylonians are going to come in. They're going to destroy it. And you should just accept that because the work that we need to do is working on our moral core. And in 28, he has a showdown with himself and this other man who's saying, no, I'm a prophet. And you know what I'm going to tell you? Two years, the Babylonians will be gone. Don't worry about that. Just pray to God the Babylonians will be gone. In other words, there are people who are setting themselves up as leaders who are giving the opposite message of Jeremiah. So what's the second guy's name? His name is Hananiah, son of Azur. Hananiah ben Azur. And he comes
0: and says, the Babylonians are going to win, but it's going to be a quick two years and we're going to get it back. We don't
1: even know if he thinks the Babylonians are going to win. He just says, in two years, the Babylonians will be gone. They'll be gone. You don't have to worry about them. But the temple hadn't yet been destroyed So when Hananiah says in two years, the Babylonians will be gone, he's really sort of like, literally this process that feels irreversible. He's saying, no, it'll be reversed. He's saying two years from now, everybody who went and was exiled to Babylonia, they'll be back here in Jerusalem. It'll all be fine. So it's even more uphill than expected. And I love this passage because here's Jeremiah. He's presenting a vision. He's presenting a kind of leadership where he says, you know what? Being a good person is hard. Being a good society is hard. Being a good Jew is hard. It's not simple. You're not going to recite some Psalms and everything's going to go away. You actually have to work on your relationship with God. You have to work on your relationship with people. You have to work on it. And here's this other guy who comes along, who, of course, everybody is going to want to listen to the guy who gives the easy version. And he says, nah, don't worry about it. Just pray a little bit. These Babylonians, they'll be gone in a minute. You're doing just fine. So who do people want to listen to? The person who says it's facile, it's easy, you've got this. Or the person who says, this is tough and there's actual change that we need to make. So the second guy is saying what Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the 20th century called cheap grace. Yes, that's exactly it. He's offering a cheap version of grace. That's exactly what he's offering. And there's something so, just the scene is so vivid because Jeremiah, he's exhibitionist, as many of the prophets are. He's wearing this yoke on his shoulders that is wooden. He's wearing a wooden yoke on his shoulders. Yeah, so what is a yoke? So a yoke is like, imagine seeing like oxen plow. They would have something over their shoulders that would hold them together and would keep them in line and keep them moving. So he's wearing one of those. He's wearing that on his shoulders, walking around saying, Don't you people understand you have to accept the yoke of Babylonia? There's some symbolism of like, you're kind of stuck under the yoke of your own sin, right? I mean, you want your rabbi with a yoke on their back? No, you want your rabbi to make it seem like everything is going to be fine and everything's going to be easy and we're going to be able to do it. And Hanania breaks his yoke. Hanania, in his own exhibitionist move, he cracks it in half and he says, look, I'm freeing you from all of this and Jeremiah says, I don't think you get it. You've now gotten rid of my wooden yoke. The next yoke is going to be made of iron. This is fascinating. Now, are they enemies or are they more like uh, disputants like Hillel
0: and Shammai who disagreed on everything but respected each other, married each other's kids and all that? What's their relationship?
1: Enemies. And that it's something we're not used to, right? If you're thinking about the rabbinic tradition, you're thinking about the these and these are the words of the living God. I just want you to know that when we say these and these are the words of living God, it means that there's those out there that aren't. And in the prophets, it's actually much clearer. In the prophets, it's like, no, 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 I'm speaking for God and God is telling you, you have to change. And this other person is saying, I'm speaking for God and God is telling you, you're just fine. And Jeremiah says, you're leading these people. And what's incredible is he listens to Hanania say, the Babylonians are going to be gone in two years. And he says, I wish you were right. I wish I could sign on to that. If only, let's hope, that would be amazing. We would love to see that, right? He's not a naysayer for the sake of being doomsday. He's a naysayer, Jeremiah, because he actually wants the people to get it right. And he's essentially saying, this person who's giving you the cheap grace, he's robbing you of the real redemption here.
0: Well, fascinating. So what happens? So they have these genuine enemies have this existential dispute. And like everything in the Bible, it's a dispute that we can, recognize so easily because it exists in our world. You have one person saying religion's hard, you the other person saying religion's easy. And so what happens? Oh
1: man, Hanania, he actually dies. Jeremiah basically says God didn't send you and you're gonna die because of what you've done. And Hanania dies. So it is it is a spectacle. Not at the hand of Jeremiah though. No not at the hand of Jeremiah, he dies of natural causes or whatever natural causes are. It's almost like when you ask, like, will lightning strike? This is an example of where the prophets want to tell you lightning will strike, right? That's essentially the way that it ends. And Jeremiah's life is not so easy. It's not like they put him in jail, they lynch him, they try to lynch him. I mean, has a very, very difficult life. And he argues with God constantly to say, why are you sending me? Please, these people, they're not going to listen to me. Why are you sending me? And God tells him over and over again, I'm sorry, you're going to be the bearer of bad news because somebody needs to share this news. And I think about this, not just in terms of religion, right? Like religion is one place where we ask, do we want the people who challenge us? Or do we want the people who tell us that it's all going to be fine? There's even just any kind of leadership. I mean, we've been in a pandemic here. Who are the leaders who literally are walking around with a yoke on their back and saying, look, this is going to be tough. It's going to be a long haul. We need to make sure that we change the way we do things. We need to make sure that we're doing it right. Otherwise, we just have to give in to what this is and figure out how to respond it's how large this issue is and overwhelming this issue is, and we need to change. Well, this is what
0: Churchill did at the
1: beginning of the war. This was Churchill's speech in all the speeches,
0: actually, but it's his most famous speeches where we're basically saying, if you're going through hell, keep on going. Saying exactly that. This is going to be long, difficult, bloody, painful, and we're going to get through it, but there's going
1: to be... Nothing easy about this. Right. But in doing that, you can give a message. And this is what Jeremiah does. He gives a message of agency. He says, you have agency. Change the way you are. Change what you do. And this Hananiah guy, it's so paternalistic. It's, oh, it'll all be fine. Don't worry your pretty little heads about it, people. It'll all be fine. And sometimes we want that reassurance, but it actually removes our agency and it's not honest about the problem. So I don't think this is just a religious issue. I think this is leadership in general. When do we need our leaders to say it's all gonna be fine? When do we need our leaders to level with us and give us agency and say, this is what you need to do? And what happens when people rebel against the leaders who say, this is gonna be tough and there are things we're gonna need to do? And we're going to have to make sacrifices and we're going to need to change our ways. What do we do when people say, nah, I don't want to hear that? How do you scaffold? How do you support the leader who you think is giving the right message, even if it's wildly unpopular?
0: Now, do we have any indication in the text of Jeremiah 28 as to
1: who the people are siding with? Oh, the people seem to be siding throughout the book of Jeremiah with what he calls the false prophets. They want the cheap grace. They want the cheap grace. And also, they call Jeremiah a traitor how could you say that the temple is going to be destroyed? You traitor. You want the Babylonians to come in. And he says, no, that's not my point. I I don't want any of this. I would love to have the Babylonians disappear, but it's not magic. It depends on you and what you're willing to do. So they turn it into politics when it's really about morality. And that, I think, happens all the time. I mean, we're in America right now. You can't talk morality without people getting political and arguing that it's about political partisanship and not being willing to actually see the different moral sides of an issue. Could you imagine somebody says to you, you're killing the orphan and you say, you're a traitor. (laughs) Think about what he just leveled at you, what the accusation is of what you just did. That's right. Now, how do you think this
0: dichotomy plays out just in one sphere? Let's say the Jewish communal sphere. The idea that religion is hard on one hand, and it should be easy because I'm In the religion is hard camp, that's the camp where it seems we have the most commitment,
1: long-term sustained commitment. I think the question of whether people want their religion to be magic or whether people want their religion to be work probably differs based on who people are, where they're coming from, what they're going through, right? There are times when you just want to say to people, oh, it's magic. You'll be fine. Of course you want to say that to people right? You're not going to sit in front of a cancer patient and say, well, actually what you need to do is work on this and that, right? You would never, I mean, what kind of thinking is that even? But I always wonder as an educator, whether we sell religion short by not talking about its complexities, by not talking about its demands. And people are going to differ on what they think those demands are. Of course, but talk about how it's actually supposed to shape us, how it's actually supposed to challenge us and not simply be a reaffirmation of what we already think we know, what we already want to do.
0: And that gets to the question is, are we created in God's image or is God created in our image? I love that
1: question. I mean, we are human beings with a tremendous capacity to justify anything. We can justify anything. Now, Is there a real divine human partnership that's supposed to stand at the core of what Judaism is? I believe so. But how do you know when that partnership is veering too far in people just making things easy on themselves? And it doesn't matter what your denomination is.
0: But I think one of the things you've taught us this morning is that the book of Jeremiah says it's very easy for people to gravitate to the cheap grace. I think the best movie, the best documentary, perhaps the best movie I've ever seen is facing darkness, which is the story of Samaritan's purse in Liberia during the Ebola crisis in 2014. And, uh, Kent Brantley, who was the genuinely heroic doctor, he ended up becoming times man of the year in 2014 And the documentarian says to him, did your faith in his case, your Christianity, is that what led you to survive? He said, I don't know, but it's what led me to get Ebola. Cause that's what he's saying. He said, this is what faith does. He said, faith My faith brought me into the fire so that I could serve and treat and help others with the inevitability that I would get Ebola. He said, that's what my faith did to me. I don't know if it cured me. I know it got me sick and that's okay. That's incredibly
1: self-reflective. And it's basically saying we make choices. Those choices have repercussions and consequences, and those choices may be spurred by faith but that doesn't mean that there's going to be some magical panacea that's going to take away the consequences of our choices.
0: I mean, for Kent Branley, Faith wasn't, you know, listening to some uh, religious music and feeling really good when he left on a Sunday. It was serving the most vulnerable people in the world who were being afflicted by the worst plague in the world and subjecting himself to
1: it. And he got it. It's profound. And what I think is fascinating is that you could have religious people actually argue over whether from a religious standpoint, he should have done that. And I think that's also part of the power of religion, right? Meaning the power of debate within these conversations, right? Like you said, are Jeremiah and Hananiah are they like Hillel and Shammai? Or are they something else? And I said, there's something else. But within Jeremiah's side, you could imagine, and you would want to see some healthy debate as to what should happen and how it's going to happen, right? It's the difference between the prophetic and the rabbinic, right? Although you could say there were plenty of prophets who were around at the same time saying slightly different things from one another. That's the truth of it, right? Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, they're all pretty contemporaneous with each other, and they're saying slightly different things. But the rabbinic tradition really brings out a little bit more, brings out the arguments a little bit more.
0: Right, but the conception of faith, the Jeremiah conception of faith, the Kent Bramley conception of faith is is what really inspires us whether it inspires us by studying jeremiah or by watching a documentary about kent branley who's still serving in africa now this is the notion of faith that really inspires us to be deeper people of faith whatever religion we happen to be
1: yeah it's, i mean it's really seeing something much bigger than oneself we're not the center of the story
0: right well what a magnificent learning from jeremiah uh, thank you so much for bringing it to us such a pleasure a passage which i'd never consider because that's what we we're talking about before uh we Jews actually don't study the prophets very much.
1: Depends who you are.
0: <laughs> right, I guess so. But as compared to the Parshan, the rabbinic tradition, the Talmudic tradition, so it's such a pleasure to learn the prophets, which is such a great treasure that we have that is just inviting us to learn more about it. Now, the uh, concluding question on the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, which is the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says in the book, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war, And he said, uh, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown up person. (laughs) I love that. Me too. So in all of your years as a Jewish educator, scholar, teacher, author, what are two things that you've learned about humankind?
1: One, I would say, and maybe I'm impacted by your quote here. One is so many people think that they're the only one, the only one that has this problem or this issue. And part of my work is actually just saying, you're not the only one. Why don't you meet this other person? That's
0: so interesting because I would have thought, perhaps incorrectly, that that problem would be a problem alleviated by technology in the sense that if someone has a problem, they can immediately find others at the very least commenting on it. And if they want to, they could join a group of people who are suffering from the same thing, whatever it is. Is is that right or, or not?
1: Well, that would bring me to my second point is that I think a lot of people are very self-conscious. I think a lot of people are worried to share their problems, say what they don't know. And sometimes that stops them from finding others who actually have a similar problem or a similar question or similar trouble. So those two things, I think... I care a lot about the one-on-one conversations that follow the class or that follow the service or come before the service because you get to be there for a person and they know they're not going to be judged, which is pretty remarkable.
0: Right. So even though we're in kind of a therapeutic
1: culture, people are not
0: availing themselves of its benefits.
1: Some people are, some people aren't. In that they're still keeping stuff to themselves. I think so. I think so. I've seen that. I mean, I've probably done it myself, heck, right? I'm not just a mirror for somebody else. I've I'm sure I do it too.
0: Right. And it's hard to think that there's any problem that there aren't lots of other people who had or have and can be there to help one through.
1: Yeah. But there could be something scary about that too, because then you have to generalize a problem that's yours. Almost your problem becomes your security blanket. And then you have to say, well, actually, no, this problem isn't right there. I think there are many facets to it.
0: Right. Well, Elena, thank you so much for such a fascinating conversation on so many levels stemming from this incredible passage from uh, Jeremiah 28. Such a joy. Thanks for having me. Happy Hanukkah. Thank you. You too. If If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at rabbishusband.com or feel free to email Daniel at therabbishusband.com.